0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. He is risen. You know, Jesus' death on the cross and subsequent resurrection together form the climax of God's plans for redemption. The ultimate display of God's power in which the death of Jesus unlocked the door to eternal life. And it was the final proof that Jesus possessed that same power in himself. But as much as we think of the resurrection in terms of power, in terms of God being stronger than death, and Jesus' ability to himself walk out of the grave, the Bible just as much speaks of the resurrection in terms of authority. In terms of the right of God and God's Son to exercise that power on behalf of others. Which is awesome. Because Lord knows that you and I don't possess that power ourselves, right? And it doesn't take much looking around to realize that neither does anybody in earthly positions of authority, say in our governments. Because as much as we can flatten the curve with something like this whole COVID-19 pandemic and do our part in fighting for life, and as much as other authorities can, can encourage us to do so or even mandate that we do so, none of us actually holds authority over life in our hands. Just look at the death toll mounting around our own country right now. So that we are therefore deeply in need of someone who does. Someone who not only has the power that we don't possess, but who has the authority to exercise that power on our behalf. Which is precisely the authority claimed by the crucified Christ. When in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, after the resurrection, Jesus declares to his disciples all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations what i want to consider today though on this resurrection sunday is not just jesus authority but also importantly our response to it important why because the resurrection benefits you and i will receive or not receive are dependent on how we respond to that authority. Let me say that again, the resurrection benefits you and I will receive or not receive in this life or in the life to come are dependent on how we respond to the authority of the resurrected one. And to get at that, I want to actually step back and begin by considering the first response to Jesus' authority found in that gospel according to Matthew, which coincidentally brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of which that response is recorded. For those of you who've been following along with us these past few months, you know that we've been trekking through the Sermon on the Mount in a series on Jesus' upside-down kingdom, and this sort of king's speech he gave about just how different it is to live as citizens of his kingdom than to live merely as citizens of this world, and whether we live under or out from under his authority. And at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, we find that first response to Jesus' authority that Matthew documents. The response, not by his disciples, but by the crowds. And it's found at the end of Matthew chapter 7. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there and to take a look with me at these two short verses that bring this chapter to a close. They might seem insignificant, but are going to be our way into understanding that resurrection authority and how we're meant to respond to it. Here's what they say. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. These crowds were introduced back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 4 and 5, where we're told that as Jesus' fame spread on account of his ability to heal the sick and the afflicted, that great crowds began to follow him. And by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's his authority that's caught their attention, an authority that leaves those who recognized it astonished. But what can we say about this authority that the crowd recognized? And second, what do we make of their response insofar as it informs our own? First, the authority that they recognized. Not yet in full bloom as at the end of the gospel, but there in its seed form nonetheless. What can we say about it? Well, to begin, that it was an authority, at least at this point in Matthew, that was wrapped up with Jesus' teaching. That's what verse 28 says, that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Which surely has to do with all he's been saying in this Sermon on the Mount, right? After all, back in chapter 5, that's the word Matthew uses to introduce the Sermon on the Mount. When we were told that Jesus seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, sat down, and taught. It's the same verb used here at the end of chapter 7, bookending the whole thing as Jesus' definitive teaching, and really the basis for everything he'll teach afterward. Kingdom 101, that he goes on to expand into other courses later in the gospel. But everything he says after has in some measure already been said in the Sermon on the Mount. His authority was here wrapped up with his teaching. But what was so astonishing about it? Well, verse 29, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes as one who had authority, particularly in his teaching as compared with the teaching of their scribes. Jesus stood out, which must have at least in part had to do with how he went about interpreting their most holy text, the law of Moses. Jesus, just like Moses, once again ascending the mountain as Moses had. But unlike Moses, not waiting for God to speak to him, that God might speak through him, but simply opening up his mouth, because Jesus not only spoke for God, but as God. Not like all our government officials today, whether the vice president or the surgeon general or some other member of the coronavirus task force who, when they take the White House podium, have to hold up what? The president's 15 or 30 days to slow the spread, functionally repeating the words of their higher up, because they don't have the authority to speak for themselves. Now, Jesus steps up as El Presidente himself, simply opening up his mouth, because his words are as authoritative as his father's words. What does it mean, though, when it says he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes? What was a scribe? We don't really have scribes today, at least not like they did back in Jesus' day. Instead, we've got Siri to take notes for us and Xerox machines to make our copies or some app now to snap a picture of whatever we want saved for later. Back then, though, scribes were a pretty important part of society, back before Gutenberg and his printing press, because scribes were the ones who took down the dictation of kings. They kept the records of the kingdom and then made copies of those records for everyone else. They were the bookkeepers of the kingdom. And in many ways, it's legal authorities because they knew the laws of the kingdom inside and out. After all, if you spend your life copying laws for everyone else, there's at least a hint of hope that some of that is going to stick. The scribes were the legal experts of the day, the lawyers and teachers of the law. They were the ones with legal expertise. But they were not the legislators. They were not the law givers. They were the de facto jury of Jesus' day, but not the judge. The law keepers, but not the lawmakers. Jesus, on the other hand, stood atop that mountain and interpreted the law as one on par with it, fulfilling it in the sense of filling it full, filling it out and filling it up in a way that no one, not even Moses, had ever done before. Almost giving the law again, giving it fresh, because the law had to be reworked around him, the one that law pointed to, and the work he had come to do. And this is the authority that the crowd first recognized in Jesus' teaching. The authority to not only quibble, with other lawyers as to what the law meant, but the authority to define for everyone what the law said, as one who spoke not only for God, but as God. An authority after this that is extended in the Gospel of Matthew to include Jesus' authority to not only teach, but to heal and to confront the powers of hell itself and to ultimately forgive sins as he finally sits upon the judge's seat and calls all humanity to himself. Again, not only for God, but as God. That's what we can say about the authority they recognized. But second, what are we to make of their response insofar as it informs our own? what are we to make of the fact that they were astonished? The word itself is not decisively positive or negative. It simply means to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed and not knowing what to do with oneself. It literally means to be struck out of one's senses. In Matthew, though, astonishment always appears as a barrier To fuller commitment so that those who are astonished are so struck out of their senses that they are left unable and unwilling to follow Jesus as they ought. So a similar statement is made later in Matthew when we're told that the people of Jesus' hometown were likewise astonished at his teaching and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers and sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? And it says, they took offense at him. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Astonishment is correlated with unbelief interesting. And even the disciples are said to be astonished after that when Jesus explains how it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So that they say to each other, who then can be saved? Why? Because they prove by what follows that they wanted to be a part of the kingdom precisely for the riches So they're astonished, which again is always a barrier in Matthew to the fuller commitment Jesus' authority calls for. And that fits the astonishment of the crowds back at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, which wasn't the beginning of their becoming Jesus' followers, but rather a barrier to it. The crowd that was still astonished at Jesus' teaching three years later after he had already entered Jerusalem, the week of his crucifixion. That's what we're told in chapter 22, verse 33, that they were still struck out of their senses, that they were still struck out of their senses over what he was teaching. It fits the astonishment of the crowd back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. that they were still struck out of their senses over what he was teaching. Fits the astonishment of the crowd back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and their astonishment that continues right up to its end, as well as every appearance of this crowd in between. You know, the crowd in the gospel of Matthew is almost its own character, always looming nearby as the sort of uninvited guest who bursts into the scene without knocking like Kramer and Seinfeld showing up when you least expect them often for the sole purpose of embodying that inept, inapt, inappropriately shallow response driven more by their feelings than by facts on the table, more by what mood they're in than by the truth of what's in front of them. And so any following the crowd do, in relation to Jesus, is painted by Matthew as driven more by their fixation with his ability to heal their diseases than out of devotion to the one they were following. All the way up to their welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, when the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and were told that others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! So that when the city asks, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But it's all driven by their momentary astonishment. Which is why, within a week's time, that very same crowd came with their swords and their clubs to arrest Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And was then swayed the next day by the religious leaders to call for Jesus' crucifixion. So that being astonished at Jesus' teaching and at the authority with which he taught is not a credit to the crowd, but rather an indictment against them. This, then, is not the response we're called to. But if not astonishment, then what? What's the appropriate response to Jesus' authority? Whether seen in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount or in his resurrection Easter morning, what's the appropriate response But we don't have to wonder much because Jesus graciously tells us himself when he makes that claim to all authority at the end of the gospel. When he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, the response called for in the face of Jesus' authority is about allegiance and obedience. Allegiance and obedience. And this is what I mean. Allegiance in the sense that we're to pledge our allegiance in baptism to the one who pledged his allegiance to us. To be baptized in and into his name and the name of his Father and the Holy Spirit with him. To be identified with Christ in death to self and in living for him forevermore. It's about allegiance and obedience. Learn to observe, to obey, to carry out in obedience all that Jesus commanded. Not least in the king's speech of the Sermon on the Mount. Allegiance and obedience. Faith and faithfulness to trust and to obey. Because it is allegiance and obedience. Not simply astonishment that King Jesus is interested in. Does that feel a little weighty though? like your chances of responding like that are slim to none and that slim just left town feels like that to me and it ought to you too because left to our sin-filled selves we haven't got a chance which Jesus understood how do we know that Because in that gospel story, as much as you find the crowd's response to Jesus, you also read of Jesus' response to the crowd. And where their response is all astonishment and amazement, not ever really understanding and and never allegiance or obedience, his response to them is over and over and over again one of compassion. Compassion. Compassion for them because, like he said, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And for those sheep, Jesus knew that the allegiance and obedience called for by his authority would only be possible after the cross and the triumph of the empty tomb. That he had to ultimately lay down his life if they were going to learn or be able to learn. To follow him, that he'd pledge his allegiance first to make their allegiance possible, to win for them a heart that was able to pledge and to learn to obey his commands ever afterward. You know, when that crowd finally called for Jesus' crucifixion and Pilate washed his hands of the matter, it's very interesting what Matthew records them saying. Matthew says that when Pilate was gaining nothing in trying to release Jesus, that he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd is said to have answered, His blood be on us and on our children. You know, that's precisely what needed to happen. So that after the resurrection, Jesus could send his disciples to make disciples and those disciples to make other disciples of individuals in that crowd and of all nations beside, none of whom ever before had it in themselves to pledge allegiance or obey his commands on their own. But beginning with baptism, into his name, and really into his death and resurrection, buried with him in the water. That's what baptism stands for. Washed clean by his blood upon them, and brought up in life again. Filled with the spirit of life, that we might be taught under grace to do everything he commands. It's interesting. Much of the hope of this present crisis with COVID-19 rests in finding the individuals who already suffered from the virus in order to take their antibodies and inject them into others who are unable to recover on their own. And it's not very different when it comes to the rock bottom issue that lies beneath the pandemic when it comes to death itself. But you have to realize, it's not simply an issue of the grave, but an issue of the punishment beyond the grave that all of us have earned. Separation from a holy God for our unholy ways, our mutiny and our rebellion against his throne. To deal with death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. We are in need of an antibody that is found only in the blood of Christ, who defeated death in his resurrection. An antibody, though, that only works for those who respond. Not simply in astonishment, struck out of their senses, not knowing what to do with Jesus, but rather by pledging their allegiance to the one who first pledged his allegiance to them and committing to grow in the grace of obedience. So let me just ask you, what's yours? What's your response? My prayer is that it would be a saving response made possible by that first Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday so long ago. That you'd be resurrected also to that new life of allegiance and obedience now and for the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today that you give us eyes to see the authority of your Son, Jesus. And to see it in its fullest form and full glory. And to recognize the resurrection as the final basis of that authority. But not in order that we would react in astonishment but rather that it would drive us to obedience. And I pray it would be so in the name of Jesus himself. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H bible.org.